This is the Kungar Soundcast. I'm Sam Eastman. I'm Ben Greenslade Stanton. I'm Jens Franken. Season 1, Episode 5. Okay, Jens, yeah, so uh, you grew up in Germany. How, um, how did you get into guitar? Well, it's kind of a kind of a slightly weird but but nice story in a way, which was that um, quite a lot of musicians in my family. So, my oldest brother as a pianist, my dad trained as a pianist as well, and um, I basically didn't want to play the same instrument. So I thought, well, as a kid, I, I don't want to be competing with my big brother, who's already really quite good. So I sort of took a look around and I thought, well, the guitar is a little bit like a mobile piano. You can do harmony and also it's got a wonderful shape. So yeah, it was the guitar and I just fell in love with it. You know, first lesson I knew I wanted to be a guitar player. Okay, so we, music was a, a strong thing in your, your childhood with a family of musicians, right? I, I can certainly relate to that. Um, yeah, I grew up with music around me all, all the time. I mean, I, I'm constantly told about concerts I went to that I'm never gonna remember because I was a baby. And, Mm. music I was exposed to but just getting back to the guitar so it was it was that this is the same as my big brother and everyone else in the family but not the same instrument you weren't you weren't a frustrated rock star or it, <laughs> it was always acoustic it was always that yeah, actually and that's that a really around. Uh, you're touching on a really interesting thing which is that um, I think one of the things that makes my kind of approach to the guitar slightly different from many other players is that um, I kind of didn't know about rock music it sounds really <laughs> peculiar as a guitarist but um, and that was because I, I came from this family of classical musicians, and so um, I didn't really think about it very consciously. You know, I, well, I didn't. I just simply didn't know. So I started off playing classical music because sort of that was the musical wallpaper, and the, you know, that I that I knew. Um, and it was only much later that I discovered that there were different <laughs> different styles of music. Cool. So did you did you play together as a family? Was there music as recreation? Was it something you did? in the evenings instead of going out and playing football? Or yeah, I wasn't very good at football, so... It's uh, <laughs> odd uh, <laughs> how often that goes hand in hand with being a musician. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like your brain is taken up just with that one yeah. skill that you'd have to devote so much time to. Um, no, actually, strangely enough, there wasn't, I mean, to come back to your question, there wasn't sort of much joint music making in the family, and I think that was simply because of the age gap between everyone, because um, my dad moved from, well he trained as a pianist but then drifted into writing on music and he worked uh, for German radio. So he didn't really actively play anymore when I was a kid growing up. And uh, my eldest brother's 15 years older than me and he was already at college. Yeah. So there wasn't really a sort of practical music environment but there was, you know, we were listening to music all the time. It was, it really was the wallpaper. Yeah, so it's quite a, it's quite a solitary route in a way that as you know, as a kid, you're playing by yourself, but also as a solo classical artist, do you do much work with ensembles, or is your main focus the solo recital side of things? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I love playing in ensembles, mm. um, but that's something really that I only had opportunities to do then when I went to music college, actually, because beforehand I was just uh, practicing a lot and, and solo. And I suppose, in a way, there is that focus in classical with a classical solo instrument that is that focus to to individual achievement at a high level so i suppose i was really driven with that there were pieces in the repertoire i desperately wanted to be able to yeah. play so i filled my hours doing that as soon as i came to music college i, I just discovered there was so much fantastic stuff to play with other musicians and it's something that i, that I absolutely adore doing still so do you approach playing solo differently to playing in an ensemble is there a is there a mindset you get into that's that's different when you're sitting down by yourself or that's different when you're part of an ensemble? I think I'll probably prepare quite similarly in a way that I, I really do practice. Yeah. Um, so that's that's probably similar, but I'd say that um, maybe I think the social component to, to working with others means that you invariably approach it slightly differently. And of course, simply the fact that the musical material is shared between more players means it, it is a different process, different working process. Yeah. And of course, I suppose there's also the convention that we can play off-sheet in, 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 in ensemble, whilst solo, obviously, generally, the, the, the cost, it's customary to play from memory. So that, in a way, is quite nice because it takes that out of the equation. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, so talk, if you don't mind, talk a little about 
as an interpreter, because you're obviously in the, the classical realm of music, so you're dealing presumably primarily with repertoire that's been done before. Mm. So are you looking to put your own mark on it, to reinterpret it in a different way, to do something different, or is it a recreation or a reimagining? I like reimagining. That's, I think that's mm. great. That's a great way of putting it, actually, because I suppose the start has to be the, the score. And actually, it's something that I, I heard um, you guys uh, chat about in, in, in one of these podcasts before, this idea that uh, the chart is the starting point, you know, not then there's an interpretive process that happens. Mm. Musician, I think it's the same thing. You know, the, we have this kind of blueprint of what the the composer or the songwriter wanted, and then it's up to our imagination to to bring it to life. But I, mean, I should say maybe because most of the solo playing I do these days is quite obscure stuff that hasn't been played or isn't played very much, um, or or hasn't really been played very much in the past. I do sometimes feel like I'm starting from scratch. So, so is that the joy for you, finding something that isn't part of the established repertoire, maybe discovering something new and and bringing that to an audience rather than yeah, absolutely. I love the idea of a sort of um, of a sort of slightly obscure figure in the past that maybe somehow I think it just suits my slightly quirky approach to things. Actually, so you know, an album which I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, at some point today is um, is actually a, a music by by someone from early nineteenth century Vienna called uh, Johann Caspar Mertz. He was a very shadowy figure, and with him, it was exactly that for me. It was that thrill of not exactly discovering the repertoire because it was around obviously but you know working from scores that have been out of print for for about a hundred years Pieces called uh, for solo guitar called uh, Badenklinger, uh, Opus 13. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I want to hear about the shadowy Viennese figure. Yeah. Yeah, so that's him, yeah. So, <laughs> basically, this, um, well, for a start, he didn't live very long, I think 1806 to 1856. And uh, what I like about him is that it seems to have taken him an awfully long time to be really good because we don't really hear about him until about sort of 1840. <laughs> right. Um, and he suddenly appears in Vienna and causes a bit of a sensation with his totally mind-blowingly virtuoso playing. And you can probably hear from that extract, you know, he, he had fast fingers, he knew what he was doing. But the thing that I really like about it is that if you listen to music from that time for solo guitar, uh, and there's a lot of it about, particularly sort of 1830s, um, nothing quite like this. It's really different. He does have a trademark signature in terms mm -hmm. of melody and harmony. You just, you know, could listen to this stuff blindfolded, piece by him that I don't know, and I'd be able to tell you right away, it's him. Yeah. And I really like that. Mm. So is there that personal side to the composer that attracts you? I mean, when you're, when you're picking repertoire, when you're looking for new things, is, is the personal element, is that what piques your interest and then you get into the music and you look for things, or do you just go to the music and then you find out about the composer? Right. What jumps out at you first? Yeah, um, probably the, the music, to be honest. But I think also this is something I'd really like to talk about, because it's a slightly hippie thing, but I think it is, it is really relevant for me personally, which is that um, I feel like I'm only good at a, a relatively small number of things on the guitar, but those things are sort of physical things that I have a, a connection with right away. So the thing with, with Mertz is that I simply feel that the way he writes for the guitar just seems to suit my fingers, and I love the way it feels to zip across the fingerboard playing his stuff. And for reasons which I can't quite explain, it feels very different playing other people's music from a similar time. So I just seem to have such a connection with him physically, if you like. Yeah, it's um, interesting. That I've always enjoyed. So I think he'll always stay with me in that sense as part of my repertoire. And then there's a supposition that as a stylist, he was possibly similar to you if he's writing 
for your strengths almost from that far back. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, that, that would be wonderful to think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but then, then that, but that, gives a, that gives you a connection to start with. Yeah. And then, I mean, because I know that, because I don't see an abstraction of art and personality and that I, I, think, I think when you write something, it becomes personal. I mean, in the, in the realms we're talking about, when you write when music as art, it is a piece of you, it's a part of you. Mm. So, I, you know, when I discover a new musician, I want to know about everything about them. And sometimes it's horrendously disappointing and that then tarnishes the music for me a bit. Okay. You know, right. I, find, I find I can never listen to Art Pepper in the same way since reading his book. Mm. Um, he's, a, he's a beautifully light, airy, sweet saxophonist who had the most horrendous, dark, drug-filled, misogynist, violent, horrible life. And then suddenly I find, I mean, I find the dichotomy interesting when I listen to the music, but when I listen to the music now, I hear an edge that I didn't hear before. I'm looking for a, some hint of what he was like as a person. It's really difficult to make that separation for me with the listening, that I want to know about the people. I want to know what they're writing about. So. It's, it's, it's a really interesting uh, area, I think, actually, to what extent can we separate kind of man or woman and, and the music. And I have mm. exactly the same experience, for example, with, you know, in my area, the, the very famous Spanish guitarist Segovia, who obviously dominated the development of the guitar for about a hundred years. <laughs> and he was just not a very nice guy from everything that I can see about him. Um, and suddenly I, I find that in his recordings and I really, I, I wonder, am I being level-headed here because you know I had no problems with his recordings when I was growing up as a, as a kid. I, I find it incredibly difficult to decontextualize things. I think if I'm listening to something I want to know when it was recorded, what the political and social environment was like at that point, I want to know how it fits into the social history of what's around it. And I think, like I say, I, I find it hard to take things as abstract. I, want, I always want to dig that a little bit deeper, I always want to know about the person who wrote it, the people that are playing it, what was going on around them. You know, I, for me, I think a lot of the art that I enjoy the most is kicking back against something, is reacting to something in the world around it. So by listening just to the piece, you only get half the story for me a lot of mm. the time. So it's one of the reasons why I think I, I, I said I really like the uh, how it used to be done on, on vinyl with, you know, having a really extensive, uh, you know, sleeve notes. Mm. Yeah. Because actually it really did, I felt it, it, it offered something really equally important and, and, and valid. That really, that I, I mean, I remember still as a kid how I used to sort of devour as well. Obviously, it was CDs when I was growing up, and I used to devour the really sort of thorough booklet notes. Mm. I wanted to know everything yeah. about these guys. I found yeah. it really, really interesting, and I think it's kind of how I learned music. I hate using the term music history, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it's how I learned it. Actually, I didn't learn it from some sort of big textbook of this is yeah. you know, music history. Well, that's right. History. You you have a look at. These, I mean, even when there's not. Uh, a program note or an essay written by by producer or, or guest or whatever you are kind of picking up who's playing on that you know mm. years uh, studios all sorts of different information and a lot of the stuff we listen to mm. there's you know originally and nowadays with reissues there's not always the track listing or the personnel listing or no. you there's so little information on some of the stuff that me and you know, Ben listen to that I and I always find it frustration is that because of the digital Format or because I mean this is just something that I, I think that was because it was you know back in the in the in the fifties and sixties it just wasn't important it was oh, okay, the studio right. guys coming in and doing something but you know I want to know who plays fourth trumpet on something or you know mm. what else they've done and how mm. else it links in or who plays that little bit of triangle on something I I, can't, I want as much information as I can have about everything exactly like you I suppose of course as well the the producer because I mean particularly that mm. period in the fifties and sixties I mean the producers were so hands on right I mean yeah. Something actually that I've been really lucky to experience as well, uh, you know, on, on some of my recordings that you know, I've had a really sort of hands-on producer. And, mm. and, and actually something that's, I think, would have been nice to have had some uh, training in, say, or, or, or a sort of heads up at music college. Peculiar how all that stuff is missed out, mysteriously. Well, <laughs> at that point as well, there's that focus on excelling just on the, sort of, not just on the technical side, but you're, you're playing your instrument and it's getting to the peak of that. And it's almost like it's someone else's job to, to do all that kind of stuff. It was just, what I was going to say, when you go into a recording, do you have a clear idea about the production? Do you have a, a finished concept in your head? The first recordings I did were um, actually to sit in the back of these books um, uh, published by Schott, which were sort of graded 
one to eight repertoire books for guitar, first dealing with the Romantic period and then with the Baroque. And um, well, one of the extraordinary things about that was that the CDs were um, recorded at a place called Champs Hill, um, which is a fantastic place. And they were done, you know, they weren't approached like many music publishers do, you know, they kind of sit you in a, someone's living room and you, you play through and that's it, you know, it goes in the back of the back of the book. But they were really produced as if they were commercial albums that were going to go out as separate releases. And so that was actually my first recording experience. My first album was, if you like, grades one, the two romantic guitar. <laughs> and, and the wonderful thing was that, was that I, I kind of learned about how production is done in the classical world um, at sort of the you know Aston Martin, uh, Porsche level, uh, right from the start, and and so that was a, a really terrific experience to have. Now you've just released some of these, haven't you? From are they the ones from this series? I believe. Um, yeah, that's right. So there are sort of two. There are two um, uh, EPs out there now. The best of romantic one was called Nachtvielen, mm -hmm. and. Um, it's taking the title, funnily enough, um, from a set of character pieces by Johann Caspar Matz, who I talked about at the start, um, whose little sort of educational pieces feature in those um, anthologies as well. Um, and the other one is called Fantasia, because in the Baroque period there was this huge uh, interest in improvisation, and all the preludes were largely, well, either if they were notated, they were just sketched out as, as, as harmonies, often without bar lines, actually, so there were quite a lot of prelude and fantasia type things in the in the Baroque volumes and a few of those are on that recording as well. Obviously, in the, in the run-up to a recording, I take it really seriously, and yes, I do have my own ideas uh, artistically on things, but what I've found is that, um, you know, the producer that I've been working with, um, I really value his musical input very, very much, and so often I've found actually changing things uh, in the studio based on, on feedback from him, and um, I think it just depends what sort of relationship you have. Do you really trust your producer's ears? as much, if not more so, sometimes than your own. And, and I mm. certainly have that experience. Um, I think maybe working, perhaps though, I might find myself at some point working with someone where I felt that actually, I'm quite happy to stick with plan A. Mm -hmm. you know, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think there's possibly a slight difference between playing the guitar and playing the trumpet in that I'm, when I play, I'm behind the bell. You know, I, I completely trust Benny when I record because he's mm. hearing what's being recorded, whereas I'm hearing not quite the same thing. Whereas I suppose the sound coming out of the guitar is at a much more easily accessible point for you to hear what's happening in the room. Right, I mean, I think you, you, you're right with that, but, but also I think at the same time, in a way, just because your brain is engaged with so much kind of semi-quaver combat, it's so nice to feel that there's someone sat there who's actually mm. not, who's, yeah. who can be more objective. Yeah. Because I sometimes find that I'm not listening for a, for, for a a second because I'm just engaged on you know my brain is just sure. and, and then playing and listening are two different jobs and playing and producing are two different jobs so. but I think at the same time you know the producers like uh, a band member you know even if it's your solo mm. your solo or trio whatever situation you're in with your producer 
who produces another band member. Producer in the terminology nowadays has so many different things in every different genre of music. From my interpretation of what, where we've been and when we've chatted before and, and stuff I do with you, Sam, it, it's another set of ears, isn't it? It's another, yeah. it's another person, it's another opinion. We probably spend as much time before a recording planning out what we want to do and how we want it to sound and the world we're trying to achieve before we even go in and start making noise. So Jens, how do you approach working differently when you work with a commission piece to when you're performing repertory music? Talk, tell us about the process. About, do you see them as different things? or? Right. Well, I mean, maybe the, the I'll try and answer that in, in two parts and hope that I don't forget the second part. Uh, <laughs> so the, the first part is that obviously if you're working with a with a composer on a commission, um, the chances are you're going to be sent a Sibelius file, um, so you've got that to work with in addition to probably the composer's input. Obviously if I'm doing, um, if I'm studying music from the past, um, it might be that it hasn't been recorded before, in which case I've just got the score. Uh, if it has been recorded before, there's the whole question of, well, do I listen to what other people have done with this and to what extent does that influence me? In, in that sense, I suppose I do approach it slightly differently, um, but with commissions, of course, um, there's the whole sort of aspect of collaborating with the composer, which I think can be fantastically creative. So there you get almost an ensemble uh, kind of approach to it, but with a silent partner. The, 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 that's right. I mean, maybe the only thing I, I would say, though, with a, with a commission is that, obviously, I certainly feel that the composer has an enormous amount of authority in it because it is their work. Um, and so from that, in that sense, perhaps I feel a little freer. I can perhaps feel that I'm, it's just me who's sort of in, in charge of the whole thing. I've got to use my imagination very, very much because there's nothing apart from the page to work from. Whilst with the composer, I can always, always say, well, do you, do you like this? Do you like this sound? Is mm. that what you had in mind? And maybe I'm relying almost on the composer, perhaps more than I should or could. But perhaps on part, the part of that you would get from a producer as well. I guess depending on your on your producer, yeah, and who you're working with, that aspect too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the biggest commission that I've been involved with recently, um, a song cycle um, based on um, the Harris List, um, which is an 18th century guidebook. I say that kind of in inverted commas because it's a horrendous term to use in this context. But it was a, a, an 18th century publication listing the names and addresses and specialities of London prostitutes. And that was set as a song cycle by a good friend of mine uh, called Oscar Komeni Bosch. And he's got a fantastically detailed uh, idea of what he wants. And, you know, he's a terrific writer in the sense that anything he puts down on the page will be doable on the instrument, even if it's fantastically complicated to achieve. Mm. So with him, I pretty much did get um, finished uh, scores and incredibly detailed. And, and of course, we did workshop them. Um, but I must say that, it, it, you know, it was really, you know, all I really needed to do was follow what was there. Presumably, though, you're still being given a piece of music that's written for you, not for a guitarist, per se. Um, well, I think actually in, in, in that case, well, obviously, you know, as, um, I, I did the, you know, I was involved in the, in the premiere and everything. But um, I think uh, Oscar did hope very much that it would actually have a life beyond just our collaboration. And I think that's right. I think one could think about that and should think mm -hmm. about that in that way too. Although it's interesting what you said at the, at the start about that you write apart for a specific player, which is, I suppose, a different way of doing it. And I also very much like the idea of that. It must be. Yeah, I mean, I, I always prefer writing for people than the abstract concept of an instrument uh, when I write scores. It's, I mean, the first thing I'll do if I'm writing for the Spike Orchestra is to stick, put down, instead of the instruments, the list of names of the people that I want to play it, or that I know are definitely going to play it, or that I hope are going to play it. Um, That's the, the Duke Ellington thing. Yeah, right? absolutely yeah. that. That When you write for someone and you know their strengths and weaknesses, and you know what they enjoy doing as well, you write in a different way. You, you, know, you want to play to their strengths, but also give them something possibly that is a different way of them approaching stuff that they're not used to. Uh, do you find that um, that also very much approach uh, affects the sort of the sound? I mean, that the ensemble gels particularly well because it's that group of players that know each other really well. They know that you're writing a part that's idiomatic for them, and so this is, does it sort of make the sound world closer and, and, and the relationship? I think there's a I think there's a bit of a buy-in. I'll jump in and answer that because I play. Yeah, and I, I always like to see my name on the, the top of a 
a chart because I mean merely as a player you play so much different music and sometimes it's hard to to feel involved in that from my perspective you might be playing a function band sort of thing where you're playing songs that everyone knows and recognizes and you think well I'm, I'm glad to be playing these songs these are great songs and then when we can go to to spike orchestra or, or other compositions or things that we work on there's a bit more of a personal touch yeah to when we wrote Underground and get mm. the first one of the first things we wanted to do with that was to to write a trombone duet for Ben and John because we knew we had them both on the recording you know so you sit down and we go instead of trombone one it's Ben and instead of trombone two it's John and then you start approaching that differently you don't write trombone one and a harmony part you write lines that weave in together and things that work in a different way and you write for their strengths and the sound world we gave John to solo over was different to the sound world we gave. Ben to solo over, or in our heads we approached it differently because they're different trombonists. They play the same instrument, but they play it in different ways. So we're looking at ways that we can create an environment for their strengths. Feeling like that about the music that you're playing, I think it does really affect the sound. I mean, my experience, certainly working with my my duet player, uh, fellow guitarist, uh, Norwegian Jürgen Skogmo, is that that kind of um, just getting on very well as friends um, and having... Uh, knowing each other's playing very very well means that in duo we're, we're very very strong and mm. I think stronger than if simply two professional players meet up for a recording project for a concert um, and I think that's something that I, I, I feel is very important certainly for all my ensemble playing I want to f sort of only collaborate now largely in that sort of format really mm. where I feel that I've got a personal connection to, to, to a group or to a project in that sense. Let's, let's listen to that yeah. now. An extract from the first movement of a sonata by a composer called Filippo Gragnani. umbrella of the Diabelli duo since we were students back in 2000 or 2001 whenever we started at the Guildhall but um, it's more than just having had the same teacher uh, at college and playing instruments by the same maker um, I think it's just a, a somehow there's a sort of intuitive instinctive thing that you sometimes have with a with another musician where you just know what they're gonna do you feel you know what they're gonna do before they do it mm. and that's great because it means that um, <laughs> could cut down on rehearsal time um, uh, but also just it's, it's a terrific feeling you feel really that both of you can support each other and oh, I suppose you probably have the same thing in Spike Orchestra I'm guessing um, that you kind of you know what the other players are really good at and somehow it, it just it really affects the sound world I think um, absolutely you know. and as well when we're when we're creating environments for people to improvise in for example, there's it's creating that sound world in which we think they're going to flourish and which hopefully they see as part of their own sound world as well. But also then when I'm improvising with people, I, I like to work with people that surprise me and surprise me in a way that I knew they were going to surprise me, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, it's, and it's that connection for me that is when it becomes really fun working with someone. Yeah, yeah. That you, you, you have a conversation, but, in, but it is just music. You're playing and it's that back and forth, that reciprocation, that talk, that... I think, and, and even if an audience doesn't really necessarily, and I mean by audience, you know, the live audience, all those listening to your albums, even if they don't, I mean, this is my feeling on this, even if they don't know that, uh, if they can't, uh, you know, if they're not aware of it, somehow it does, because it affects the sound, they do realise, you know, mm. even if they're not aware of what they're realising. <laughs> And it's the energy and the ease of communication, and that's all things that audiences pick up on that yeah. isn't necessarily directly sonically transferable. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm uh, really looking forward to this new project that I'm involved with uh, with Jürgen, where we're going to be recording. Um, it's quite detailed stuff. Um, late nineteenth century Spanish music on period guitars, 
and we're going to be doing that in, in spring, mm. 20, whatever next year is, 2016. You're talking there about recording on period guitars, is that something you do a lot of? Do you have a, do you have a rack of guitars at home and, you know, <laughs> right, it's 1860, it must be that one? <laughs> <laughs> All right. um, well, that's an interesting topic, guitarists and uh, guitars. Um, I mean, uh, to answer your question, basically something that I've always been interested in, but I've never really done before, I haven't recorded on a period guitar before. Um, although I listen to a lot of uh, players who work in that area and it's something I find really interesting. So it's going to be pretty fascinating to see how it works out. We haven't quite made up our mind yet whether we're going to play on modern copies of old guitars or whether we're going to try and persuade a generous collector or museum <laughs> to actually loan us you know, two dinosaurs to actually work with. Um, my gut feeling is probably in terms of the actual recording process that you know, copies of, of old guitars might be more reliable. Um, but somehow, you know, the vintage mojo and all that could be could be really mm. fun to use original instruments. And in terms of my own guitars, well, um, I mean, all the recordings we've listened to today were done on a, a guitar by a fantastic maker who um, lives in uh, Northamptonshire called Michael G. And he also, I mean, Jürgen Skogmore also plays his guitars. And well, here's a little aside that you might not know. Key fact <laughs> of today's <laughs> soundcast. Sam's uh, father is uh, a guitar luthier. Wow, John Eastman guitars, probably 10 years ago now. He took early retirement, got out of the mortgage paying racket and um, went to college and learned how to make guitars. And he's now set up in rural France in a barn in the middle of nowhere, making guitars for people. That's kind of um, living a dream. That's, uh, I was going to say, yeah. that sounds pretty much as good as it gets, really. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, mean, I think he sort of decided that he was never going to be the musician he wanted to be in terms of a player. Um, but he can make guitars that sound like he wants them to sound. So he's, you know, at the moment he's hooking up with people who play and building guitars for them. You know, that, that um, relationship between uh, player and instrument maker can be really, or luthier, uh, can be a really interesting one. I think to some extent similar to, in my experience, um, you know, the player and the producer, because, um, you know, I, I do feel that using Michael's guitars, um, I know exactly what I've got. And, you know, the instrument, I, the main guitar I use now was made for me. No, mm. to, to sort of to my to, it sounds very grand so to your specifications yeah. but so you're, not, com not, you're the commissioner at that point you're were you in at the ground level telling him exactly what you want from well, it well this is a funny story in the sense that um, at the time I said to Michael look because um, I'd never had a guitar built for me I mean I'd used Michael's guitars before but you know I got it when I was a student and I was completely skinned and I, I, it was an old one and I wasn't involved in, in, in the process at all and I said to Michael look I'd like a I'd like a fresher one um, but um do you want me to be involved in this? Do you want me to specify things? Or shall I just say, look, build me a great guitar and then stay out of the way? And he said, look, please just say, build me a great guitar and stay out of the way because otherwise it won't be as good as if, if I just feel totally free with it. And that's what he's done. And that's a superb instrument. Love it. So you've spent a certain amount of money getting your guitar or hunting down the specific instrument that you want. And you've gone in to record and you spent a certain amount of money and investment in making a recording, right? Mm. Then we go to the, the current listening process. We go to a CD, or do we go online? You have CDs, you have, have this instructional book, your, your stuff's up on, mm. on Spotify. How do you see the future for, um, for this sort of thing, for your own work, I guess? Right, well, I mean, I suppose we're in a way, in a sense, we're really lucky now because I suppose we can have it all. You know, we can have the physical CD, we can have a vinyl, you know, and we can also have a digital presence. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably the way it, it sort of has to go. Just speaking about myself, I, I sort of feel that I, I love having a physical product in my hands. And I think it goes back maybe to the style of conversation where I said that, you know, I, I, I fell in love with playing the guitar because of the way it feels under my fingers. And I think in that sense, I like the idea of touch and I like the idea of holding something. Mm. Um, you know, of the sleeve notes or the booklet or whatever, mm. and all those things that go with it. And so for me, nothing replaces that. And I also feel actually that if you put on some vinyl, there's a different, somehow there's a different vibe that comes off it. Um, I think it's that dropping the needle is just somehow you're slight, you feel like more of a catalyst than pressing play. I like that. I I've, never I've never thought about that, that, but maybe that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, and I think with, with I'm exactly the same as you with physical product. I, I think it's tactile, and I have the same experience as you that. I love the I love holding a trumpet. That's why I still play it because mm -hmm. it just feels right in my hands. It feels you know when I try a new horn, the first thing I do is if it doesn't feel like a a trumpet in my hands, I don't want to put it on my face and make sound, which I suspect is possibly similar to the way that you feel about 
when you pick up a guitar. Absolutely, it sounds, it sounds, sounds exactly the same thing. I mean, do you have the same experience, Ben, when you try your new trombones? For trombones, yes, um, <laughs> Sam laughs, but Why? I'm, I'm, yeah, me personally, no. I know, I know the instruments that I like. I'm not an avid guy that goes around, for trombone especially, goes around trying a bunch of, of different things. I actually, and I know you guys believe this as well, but I'm, for me anyway, it's very much about the player makes the sound on the instrument. Now I know, that I'm, I don't mean that to the point where I know instruments have a different sound, but for me, um, it's very much about you know, it's how you play that instrument. So, so would you? I suppose what you're kind of saying is that for you, it's about you, and in, in fact, it's in a way, yeah. More, I mean, more so than maybe the makes me sound a little bit um, pretentious. I apologise, but you know, I I know the horns that I like. I don't go to to shops and try a bunch of different instruments. Having said that, you know, as you know, Jens, and my recent um, love affair with guitar and a whole bunch of other instruments, I love to play a whole bunch of different guitars or basses or or keyboards or all sorts of different stuff. But with trombone, for me, no, I, I, I kind of stick to my thing. That's really interesting. And maybe there's 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 really something in that actually, because I do also feel that. Um, I get really frustrated with people who concentrate exclusively on the equipment that they're using, you know, and they're not focusing enough on developing mm. further. And I'm also talking about professional players, actually, you know, who who immediately find fault with an instrument when actually they're the fault. People <laughs> <laughs> hunting down to record or perform music that's not being recorded or performed so much. Where the difference between having access to a recording to listen to something in the repertoire or going straight off the score. Obviously, because um, like like you mentioned, um, Sam, you like to do your sort of research and be really thorough with stuff. I do really like the idea of digging deep before I'm doing a recording. I want to know as much as possible about man, woman, beast, and, 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 and the repertoire as I can. So I do obviously listen to what other players have done if it has been recorded. If it hasn't been recorded, of course, I'm, I'm starting fresh with what's on the page. But I think to some extent, I really like that because it puts, it forces me to be as imaginative and creative as I can. Um, and then obviously, you know, if it's recording, um, it's great to have a really good producer who's, who's going to add something in as well. If, it, if I'm working on something like, for example, the, um, you know, on the Fantasia um, album, the, uh, the Siciliana from the Bach first violin sonata, which has been recorded by violinists en masse, and also it's been done transcription by many famous guitarists, uh, and also it's been done on lute. Um, with something like that, I did listen really extensively in the run-up to the recording, of course. But I must say that at some point I kind of found that I didn't I didn't really want to listen to anyone anymore. I needed sort of quiet. Uh, I needed that kind of space before the you know, as it were, where the music stops and and my own interpretive ideas needed to develop. There was one old recording that I came across from a German violinist of the late 1920s, early 30s, who does something really spectacularly unusual at one point in that piece, and I'm not ashamed to say that I sort of stole his idea. Uh, and I'm so grateful that it wasn't the guitarist who had that idea, because then I'd feel worse about stealing it. But you know, and it seems, it, but he just does something really magical with it, and it really got me thinking quite creatively about it in a, in a totally different way. Um, just the final couple of bars where he, he slows the tempo down and, and drops to a real whisper of sound. Now, I, I actually felt not quite brave enough to slow the tempo down, because it would go against all kind of contemporary scholarship on how to play this kind of music, um, but I did dip to a, to a total whisper of sound to the extent where it was so risky to record because we almost lost the sound, and you hmm. can hear that on, that on that track actually at the end, it's really just a, uh, you know, you sneeze and you might miss it.
And the idea there was really that I, I love this idea. I mean, it's something I'm really interested in anyway, this idea of a memory and also loss, actually. It's something I think that goes through all of my recordings so far, maybe partially because I'm dealing so much with music from the past, but I love this idea of sort of looking in from the outside, as it were. And what caught my imagination with this uh, German violinist version of this piece was that he made me reflect on how I'd heard the opening. Uh, and there was something really tragic about it as well, somehow, the change in tempo, and it was so fragile, so beautiful, so exquisite. So I'm, I'm not sure I, I got it exactly the same, but I, that's what I was aiming for. Really nice. Right. So do you feel, when you're dealing with something where there's so much recorded work already of a piece, do you feel that's constrictive in a way? Can it be a burden at times? I know you were just talking about how you needed to move away from it. Is that is that to try and get a more direct connection to the composer with the score and to sort of step away from almost like the burden of every other version of it? Well, I think, um, well, maybe yes or no. I mean, on the one hand, I think I am really inspired by hearing other players because, you know, I don't you know, I know that some artists say, oh, well, I don't listen to anything because, you know, I only, you know, by, by I suppose, by implication, my my artistic sort of vision will be risked. And, I, and I, I really don't buy that at all because for a start, you know, I, I, I don't see myself like that as an artist at all. But I think we need to hear what other people are doing so that we also know what the standard is and what other people have done. And then I think, you know, if, if we have something else to say, or even if we just have something different to say, it's, it's valid. Um, so I think listening to other people's stuff is, is incredibly important. And I, th I think another thing is as well, I think if you sort of dismiss other people's recordings all the time or, or their concerts, I think it points towards sort of a lack of generosity of spirit, which goes against everything that I think a musician needs to be. You know, you need to be, you need to be that sharing creative person, I think. And, and I worry when I hear players who, who don't want to, to do that, who don't want to share. In jazz and the difference, I hate genres and, and so forth, but in classical music and in composing where the score is kind of the number one point of reference, generally. Uh, and it's very hard to describe any of this stuff without overgeneralizing things. Course. But if, that, if that's the, the point of reference, if we go to, to popular music, um, into, into jazz and these other genre names, a lot of the time, folk music as well, music from Africa and, and different parts of the world, a lot of the time that's being transferred by, by listening as opposed to having anything written down. For me personally, you know, I, I like I like reading score and, and stuff. When I was growing up as a, a kid, you know, I really wanted to make sure that my, my reading was was strong. Also, you know, the enjoyment of listening, what you learn from hearing other players, other music, through listening, because that's what it is, essentially. You know, we're creating sound. And as a composer, you, you are doing both. You're trying to create the sound that you have in your head, write it down for someone else to create that sound. And the more academic you get, the easier it is to forget that music is a, a sonic art form. That it, it isn't a piece of paper, that it takes a musician, mm. it takes a performer mm. to take a piece of paper. I think we said this when we talked to PK as well, mm. that the piece of paper is the starting point, as you said. And that, that's, I, think, I think that's true of all music, that if there's a piece of paper or there isn't a piece of paper, if you're learning something from an oral tradition, if it's all about what you've heard, I think it's that interpretation, that reimagining that the way you take from the source and well, turn it into your own sound. It's exactly the, it's exactly the same as what we're doing with this with this uh, podcast as well. You know, we're we're talking, trying to and, and learn from each other in our in our concepts and, and what we're talking about as well. And it's the it's the exact same thing. We could transcribe what we've just said, and someone else would interpret that slightly different. But with the nuance and subtlety of our of our our skill of saying what we're saying, you know, it, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Really. I think nuance and subtlety are the two words I associate most with you. Yes, and sarcasm occasionally falls in as well. But that's a context, isn't it? Context. But I think the, the, the thing you mentioned about the score as the starting point is really interesting and you used that, that, that dreaded A word, academic, you know. Um, mm. I think, you know, we said, we both admitted that at the start of, uh, of this that we, we, we are actually, I suppose, for lack of a better word, very academic about our approach. We want to do the research. We want to really know what we're doing. And I think that's incredibly important, for me at least personally. And, I, and it is in no way restrictive 
of the, the, the sort of the other side, if you like. But again, we're into this sort of area of, of making generalizations because, of course, I suppose, particularly from my point of view as a classical player predominantly, uh, yes, the score is the starting point and the scores can be incredibly detailed, but of course, there's so much that can't be notated and that's part of the beauty. So, it, you know, no matter how detailed the composer wants to be, there's got to be that element of, of yeah. personal But that's the human element. element. Yeah. That's, mm. that's people. That's what makes it art and not just P&Os. Mm. Which, I oh, no, P&Os are art as well to an extent, but it's not mechanical. You've just I written think. off a complete audience yeah, man, of this podcast. All those P&O fans, they're going to be writing in. They're going to unsubscribe. Your next commission is going to be for Ganola Concerto, you know, and, and, and you would have got it. I've lost huge... it now. I've it's gone. So that was um, something we haven't actually really talked about too much yet, um, transcriptions. Um, it was actually a, an arrangement, transcription by Johann Kasper Mertz, um, of a, an orchestral piece by um, Johann Strauss, and it's called the Annenpolka. And it's often done at the, um, you know, the traditional New Year's concert in Vienna. Oh yeah, okay. It was done, this, this, um, this one, as it were, uh, in its orchestral version. And I suppose it goes this really goes, this is personal actually, this track, it goes back to my roots and, and growing up with um, orchestral and really piano and chamber music at home. And uh, my, uh, my dad was really interested in sort of virtuoso piano transcriptions, orchestral repertoire and stuff like that. So really, you know, as many notes as you can possibly play at a time and that's a physical thrill of that. And so I, I grew up with sort of this slight transcription obsession and I've always had a soft spot for them. So I love the idea of taking an orchestral piece and then playing it on mm. the top. Mm -hmm. uh, just the sort of challenges of it physically and orally and to try to somehow reimagine it, a word you used uh, earlier on, and I, and I love that because I, it really affects a lot of my work. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, Fantastic. that's that great. Great stuff. Um, okay, so you've got some gigs coming up, you've got some recordings uh, out at the moment, upcoming stuff that you've mentioned, so come oh. on, let's give, give us a rundown <laughs> okay. of, of this, we've That's got right. time, so, so we're, we're, not, we're recording digitally, <laughs> we're not on, we don't have analogue tape here, so... Okay, so we'll start with the recording, so the, the just out with um, uh, Fantasia, the, the Baroque um, album, and Nachtviel, and the Romantic one, um, and then forthcoming is uh, a sort of portrait album of works by Johann Kasper Mautz, also recorded at Champs Hill. And um, we've heard a bit of the... Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. And, and then, um, sort of appearing soon, uh, a record, Guitar Trios and Quartets, uh, where also featuring Jürgen Skogman, who I've talked about today. Um, and, uh, well, also a recording of Schubert songs, um, which I did the Wigmore Hall with um, a wonderful mezzo-soprano called Anna Huntley, um, that recording is appearing as well, so Great. yeah, it's going to be a bit of a catalogue. Wow. In terms of um, gigs, inconveniently enough for the UK listeners, um, actually quite a lot of my work in the summer is in Norway. Um, but um, I That's good for you though. Norway, Very nice. Norway's awesome. Yeah. Norway. <laughs> um, and I hope to have Norwegian fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, so I have a few UK concerts as well, and obviously all that will be on my website, uh, www.jensfanker.org. Oh, perfect. 
Jens, thank you very much thank for very uh, much. joining us on, on our uh, Kungar Soundcast. So here's a little snippet of Underground from the Spike Orchestra's Ghetto album that we mentioned in our conversation with Jens, featuring myself, Ben Greenslade Stanton, and of course, the amazing John Stokes on trombones. So this has been the Kungar Soundcast, Series 1, Episode 5, with our special guest, Jens Franke. Please do subscribe to our podcast. Also, you can subscribe to our Mixcloud, which is mixcloud.com, Kungar Sound. And do follow us on Twitter at Kungar Sound, K-U-N-G-A-R-S-O-U-N-D. 